Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is our episode with Mr. Graham Hancock. And it is quite easily one of our best, if not the best episode we have done. If you look to your right, if you are listening to this from our main page, you will see a membership button. If you click that button, it will take you to an area where you can subscribe to become a member of our show become a ninja and by becoming a ninja you not only help us sustain what we are doing here for the price of a cup of coffee but you also you also enter into the contests that we hold for free stuff you will be the first to have access to our members only section i implore you to click that button sign up for five bucks a month really truly it would help us quite a great deal so thank you guys so much for listening without much further ado mr graham hancock the human experience is examining the antiquity of civilization as we welcome my guest mr graham hancock mr hancock it is truly an honor sir welcome to hxp thanks good to be with you mr hancock you are the john luke picard of archaeology and the graham hancock of psychedelics and consciousness exploration but for the people that may not know that already can you very briefly introduce who you are and what you do please okay well uh, i i am graham hancock uh i am a writer uh i've uh, been writing books for many 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 years uh, I used to be a journalist. Uh, I was involved in current affairs for a long time, but back in the 1980s, I stumbled across an archaeological mystery while reporting on current events in Ethiopia. Uh, and that mystery concerned the Ark of the Covenant, which, uh, as in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which uh, Ethiopia claims to possess. And... Um, <sighs> Scholars at the time dismissed the whole Ethiopian claim to possess the Ark, but I kept coming across pieces of information that lent support to it. And, and gradually I got drawn uh, into an investigation of this mystery, which decidedly had nothing to do with current affairs and was all to do with the ancient past. Uh, and that ended up in 1992 with my first book of historical mystery called The Sign and the Seal, A Quest for the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and by then, I was uh, disenchanted with the present and uh, intrigued by the past and by the untold stories of the past. And I went on to write what is probably my best-known book, a book called Fingerprints of the Gods, that was published uh, in 1995. And much to my surprise, it was a, a huge uh, worldwide sensation and it sold millions of copies. I hadn't expected this to happen at all. Uh, and it resulted in a ferocious academic backlash. Uh, how dare this journalist 
uh, claim that there might be a forgotten episode in human history. How dare he suggest that there might have been a lost civilization more than 12,000 years ago? Historians and archaeologists were outraged. Uh, I think not so much that I'd written the book, but that the book had been a success and had attracted public attention. Uh, so, so I had to deal with that uh, backlash, which was uh, as unexpected as the success of the book itself. Uh, but it taught me a thing or two about this game and about how ferocious academics are in de defending their turf and in how difficult it is to propose effectively a, a new paradigm in any area of uh, of science. Right. And I was proposing a new paradigm about the past. And following on from that, I, I did write a, a series of further books um, exploring and elaborating on the lost civilization issue. Uh, in the early 2000s, I became interested in the mysteries of consciousness and uh, particularly shamanism. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the fundamental mystery of the book that became Supernatural uh, Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind, which was published in 2005, the fundamental mystery was... Uh, incredible similarities in rock and cave art going back tens of thousands of years all around the world amongst cultures that were not supposed to have been in contact with one another. And as I investigated the matter, it became clear that I was looking at shamanistic art, that this was the work of ancient shamans. Uh, shamanism, the essence of shamanism is the trance state, uh, altered, deeply altered states of consciousness. And in these deeply altered states of consciousness, shamans in remote antiquity were experiencing visions which they depicted on the cave walls. And uh, I, I then realized that I could get out of my armchair. I hate armchair uh, research. I like to get out in the field, roll my sleeves up. If I need to go scuba diving for seven years, I'll do that as I did for my book Underworld. And in this case, I needed to go and take psychedelics in the Amazon jungle. So <laughs> I, I went down to the Amazon jungle and had my first 11 experiences with ayahuasca, the vine of souls, the sacred brew of the Amazon, and uh, I immediately understood exactly where those uh, upper Paleolithic artists were coming from because I was seeing the kind of things that they depicted. And, and then the mystery just got deeper and deeper. It, it be, I began to wonder whether, whether these visions, these experiences were just, you know, quote unquote, hallucinations or whether there was something much more substantial to them, some really deep mystery of human consciousness here and the possibility that we might be uh, retuning the receiver wavelength of the brain and, and encountering other levels of reality and the intelligence conscious entities that, that inhabit them. And so this has been a parallel interest of mine for many years since 2005. And then last but not least, um, since I do regard myself fundamentally as a writer, uh, in, in tandem with my non-fiction works, for which I'm best known, I've also written a number of uh, novels, uh, really in the fantasy adventure genre, which combine my interests in altered states of consciousness and uh, in historical mystery. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that something has been guiding this process for you and perhaps maybe this is a mission that you're on? No, I, I don't. I don't feel I'm guided. Uh, I feel that I, I, I feel that um, I have a, a natural curiosity, and I have the opportunity, 
because some of my books have been successful, um, to choose to investigate the areas in which my curiosity sends me. I don't feel I'm on a mission. Um, I, I feel it's, it, it's, it's, it's my job to raise questions, uh, to look at alternative points of view seriously, not in a, not in a, in a flimsy, um, you, you know, naive kind of way, but, but thoroughly and in depth. Uh, and and to consider whether these alternative points of view have merit. We we live in a society that's actually, it appears to be very free and open, but in fact, in many ways, it's very structured and controlled. Um, there is a there is a, a kind of mind control that operates in our society, and that mind control is based around certain paradigms of what reality is, what the past is, what the human purpose is. And I think I, I, my 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 job I don't see it as a mission. My, my job is to is to offer a coherently argued, thoroughly documented alternative point of view. And if that helps to shake other people up and, and get people thinking, then it means I'm doing my, my job well. Yeah, you know, when I started this podcast about a year ago, I wrote down three names or so that would be in the realm of dream guests for me. And you were at the top of that list. So suffice it to say, I'm pretty happy to have you here. Uh, so let's back up a little bit. Let's rewind. The first time that you were in Egypt, that was for writing uh, Sign and the Seal, right? Yes, it, yes, it was. I, I needed to go to Egypt. See, the story of the Sign and the Seal, which was the, the quest for the lost Ark of the Covenant, uh, began for me in Ethiopia, which, as I told you, was a country that I was initially traveling in as a, as a journalist, as a current affairs reporter. It began for me there, um, but, but with the Ethiopian claim to possess the Ark and the specific claim that the Ark of the Covenant rests in the, the, uh, the little sanctuary chapel beside the Cathedral of St. Mary of Zion in Aksum, in Tigray province in northern Ethiopia. Once I began to investigate this thoroughly, it became necessary to go to two other countries as well as Ethiopia. It became necessary to go to Israel, of course, um, uh, since the Ark of the Covenant, you know, ended up and finally disappeared from the Temple of Solomon uh, in Israel. And it became necessary to go to Egypt. Why? Because um, the Ark of the Covenant cannot be separated from the figure of Moses, the Old Testament figure of Moses. And Moses, as we know, was, uh, according to the Bible at any rate, was reared in the household of the Pharaoh uh, in Egypt. That Pharaoh was probably Ramesses II. Um, and and uh, therefore, I needed to understand the Egyptian background to Moses and whether that had had any effect on the mysteries of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what first took me to Egypt uh, and, and took me to places in Egypt, for example, the Temple of Karnak in Upper Egypt, where you can see processions of priests carrying ark-like objects on their shoulders. It took me to the island of Elephantina near uh, Aswan, uh, further south in Egypt, where, where at one point there was a, a fully-fledged Jew Jewish temple. Uh, and this is a mystery because it was it ran in parallel to the Temple of Solomon. It wasn't later than the Temple of Solomon. Um, and, and, of course, it took me to the pyramids of Giza. Uh, and, and I found myself one, one morning standing in front of the great pyramid of Giza, this gigantic structure 
looming above me, 480 feet high, you know, 13-acre footprint, 6 million tons of incredibly precisely engineered stone. Um, and and um, I just thought, wow, you know, what the hell is this? <laughs> and, and And when I started to you know, my curiosity was was tickled, and I, I began to say, well, what are academics saying about this? And I felt that what they were saying about it was just incredibly dismissive and stupid and didn't do justice to the power and the, and the majesty and the difficulty of this thing. I mean, creating something like that is not easy. And they were, you know, they were saying this is one of the, one of the very first gigantic structures ever created in Egypt. So where was the background to it? Where did they, where did these guys learn to do this? And that's really what set me off on the, the track of considering the possibility that there might have been a lost civilization, that we might be seeing a legacy of high wisdom and knowledge preserved in Egypt and manifested in the pyramids. So, I mean, this is by no means an easy topic to tackle the origins of civilization and perhaps this this myth, but your your theories start with this flood myth, and it's highly centric around your work, and you've researched many aspects of these historic floods, their masking effects of hiding these civilizations. What was the result of that research in locating these underwater civilizations? Well, okay. I, I mean, if, if you're beginning to consider the possibility of a lost civilization before history began, you have to consider the agency by which that civilization became lost. Um, and that inevitably puts you inevitably puts you in cataclysmic territory. Uh, you 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 don't a civilization doesn't simply disappear. Something has to happen to it. And and I began to look at at the, 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 the there's a lot of information anyway, e even in ancient Egypt, for example, which points back to a remote period thousands of years earlier. And that's how I found myself looking at the Ice Age. Uh, which set in mm, 125,000 years ago and reached its maximum extent about 21,000 years ago. It's difficult for people today to, to conceive of how different the world was. You had ice caps that were two miles deep, covering almost the whole of the northern half of North America, stretching as far south as uh, New York State, and uh, and and covering most of northern Europe, mountain-high ice caps uh, in areas that are densely populated and productive today, they, they were completely uninhabited at the time. They were ice deserts and, and there was two miles of ice sitting on top of the land. Sea level, as a result, was massively lower. Sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today. Why? Because all the water in those ice caps had evaporated up out of the oceans, fallen and rain and as, as rain and frozen as, as ice. The global climate was very different then from the climate we have today. So, so the world looked very different and, and huge areas that are now underwater because when all that ice melted, the water went back into the oceans and sea levels rose by 400 feet. Huge areas that are now underwater were above water then and would furthermore, the coastal areas, have been the most desirable lands on earth. Uh, and, and it seemed to me absurd that archaeology was forming a picture of the human past without really taking account of the 10 million square miles of land about the size of Europe and China added together that were flooded at the end of the Ice Age. 
Um, it, and, and furthermore, the meltdown of the Ice Age was cataclysmic. There was a, a slow process between about 21,000 and 12,000 years ago, 12,800, 12,900 years ago. And then we have, a, we have a series of cataclysmic events that occur. And there's a particular window between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago when the Earth just goes into a kind of paroxysm of um, uh, extinction-level event, really. And this was not being taken into account by historians at all. They all felt that this was prior to the story of human civilization, that all human civilizations had begun to emerge after that. Uh, and, and I was contemplating the possibility that, as all the legends and myths of the world suggest, that there was an episode of high civilization before that, and that therefore it, it had been wiped from human memory uh, during those cataclysms around 12,000 years ago. Uh, so this ultimately took me on seven years of scuba diving expeditions, looking at, at structures un underwater down to 120 feet underwater. We need to go deeper, uh, but 120 feet is about as far as you can go with uh, normal scuba gear. Uh, Otherwise, you have to get into technical diving. Uh, I never did that. I became pretty good at, at at scuba diving, but I never went below 120 feet in in depth with mixed gases and and technical diving equipment and so on. Uh, uh, but but again, it was a, it was a matter of putting myself into the subject, taking taking the risks, and and going to see whether uh, there was indeed anything mysterious underwater and you can be absolutely sure there is uh, there is a great deal uh, of, of mysterious structures underwater and often local fishing communities and local divers know about them so I, I had local people in India in Japan in the Bahamas uh, in the Mediterranean in the Pacific who who helped me uh, find the the structures that I was looking for what did you what did you find down there um, well, off the northwest coast of India, there's two huge cities underwater in the Gulf of Cambay at a depth of 40 meters, a bit more than 120 feet. Uh, southeast coast of India, Mahabalipuram and uh, Pumpahar, again down 100 to 110 feet underwater. Uh, enormous man-made structures, Japan, uh, Yonaguni, um, a whole area of structures cut from solid rock which have, were last above water more than 12,000 years ago further north in Japan off Okinawa giant stone circles 110 feet underwater off uh, off Kerama particularly an island called Akajima um, in the mid-Pacific in Micronesia you have a, a mysterious structure above water called Nan Madol um, but if you go underwater there, you find that it continues down and it just goes all the way down to the bottom of the bay. And then there are huge columns, some standing, some fallen. None of this has been taken account of by archaeology. We, we found structures in Malta. Malta is famous for its megalithic uh, monuments. There are huge megalithic temples. And I think those temples, which archaeology likes to date to five or 6,000 years ago, are in fact much older uh, because we found uh, other such structures underwater in areas that were last above water more than 12,000 years ago. Uh, there's a famous phenomenon in Malta called the cart ruts. Uh, of course, they're not cart ruts, but there are parallel wheel-like grooves cut into the rock of the island of Malta. And these sometimes just stop at the edge of cliffs 
But if you then go underwater there, you find that they continue uh, on the other side, they continue underwater, and again, they go down to the maximum depth that we were able to dive as scuba divers, and probably uh, a good deal beyond that. Uh, so it's really all, all over the world, this 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 phenomenon, and, and eventually I wrote a book about it called Underworld, Flooded Kingdoms of the Ice Age, that was uh, published in 2002. You've talked about a numeric code that coincides with the longitudinal axis and the number of lost civilizations around the world, and this code seems to be scattered through religious myth and lore. Where does this code come from, and what is it pointing to? Well... Um, there, there is um, a, a phenomenon, it's an astronomical phenomenon actually, called the precession of the equinoxes. Um, There's something else that my research has forced me to do because the ancients did it, is to come to terms with astronomy and to begin to understand the apparent motions of the, of the heavens. Um, what the theory is, this may not be the causative agent, but the theory is that there is a wobble uh, on the axis of the earth. It's rather like if you set a top spinning and leave it to spin for a while, the spin will begin to decay and the top begins to wobble. Can you envisage that? And the, the, the top part of the top begins to transcribe a, a circle in its own right. It seems that the Earth does this. Uh, and the theory is that it's caused by the opposite gravitational pools of the sun and the moon on the earth. Um, th there may be a whole other explanation for it, but in a sense that doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is the observation, and the observation, because the earth is the viewing platform from which we observe the stars, changes in the orientation of the viewing platform uh, will result in changes in the rising and setting times of stars at particular times of year and indeed in the orientations of the stars in the sky. It's not the stars that are moving, it's the earth that's moving, but it gives the illusion of the stars moving. Of course, all the stars are moving as well. They have their own proper motion, but they're so distant from us that those movements are really unfold over p periods of hundreds of thousands or, or millions of years. Precession, the, the wobble on the Earth's axis, uh, creates changes in the star field, in the observed star field, in, in a much shorter time. Within every 72 years, uh, you complete a one degree shift. And uh, when, when you multiply this by three, 360 degrees in a, in a full circle, you get 25,920 years. This is the, what, is, what the ancients called the great year, the, the, the period in which the star patterns revert to their starting point. So you've got a grand cycle of change in the heavens that operates at a very specific rate, which is one degree every 72 years. Now, that's quite hard to observe. One degree is about the width of your finger held up to the horizon. So, you know, you really need many human lifetimes and accurate records to be kept to really notice this and to realize that some kind of process is going on. And then to go further from that and to be able to predict how the star field will look thousands of years in the future or how it looked thousands of years in the past, you need a lot more observation. You need science, actually. And, and this is the puzzle because the numbers related to the precession, what's called the precession of the equinoxes, um, based on the number 72, a whole sequence of numbers, for example, 72 plus 36 is 108, half of 108 is 54, 
72 times 30 gives you 2,160. Um, it takes 2,160 for the sun on the equinox to pass through one complete sign of the zodiac, the 12 constellations of the zodiac, lie in a belt uh, around the path of the sun. Um, and and uh, all these numbers, based on the heart, the heartbeat of the system is the number 72, all these numbers crop up in very ancient myths from all around the world. And the myths themselves frequently describe in symbolic terms a process that is unmistakably precession, this, this phenomenon that we call uh, precession. And a really fantastic study was done of this by two really top-grade scholars, Giorgio de Santillana, who was the professor of the history of science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, through into the 1960s, and Hertha von Deschent, who was a professor of the history of science at Frankfurt University. The book is called Hamlet's Mill. And they finally came to the conclusion that what they described as some almost unbelievable ancestor civilization thousands and thousands of years in the past had scientifically observed and recorded the precession, had felt that it was important for some reason, and had devised stories that would be passed down by word of mouth from generation to generation, which incorporated accurate scientific knowledge of this phenomenon. Um, and and th they made the point that it really didn't matter whether the storyteller knew what he or she was passing on, so long as they told the story true and repeated the sequence of numbers that was within the story, uh, then the information would be passed on until such a time as another civilization could arise which would be able to decode this information. And that's why it's interesting that the same sequence of numbers that we find in ancient myths appears in ancient monuments. For example, 2,160 years is the time it takes for the equinox sun to precess through one house of the zodiac. Um, the, the, the two houses of the zodiac is 4,320 years. Multiply 4,320 by 10 and you get 43,200. So we have to ask ourselves whether it's a coincidence or whether there's something extraordinary going on that the Great Pyramid is a scale model of a hemisphere of the Earth on the scale of one to 43,200. In other words, if you take the height of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, you get the polar radius of the Earth. You get a printout, an exact, precise, scientific printout of a key dimension of our planet, which was not supposed to even be known until relatively recent times. And if you measure the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by the same number, 43,200, which is one of those numbers found in ancient myth all around the world, uh, you get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. Uh, it appears that um, the Great Pyramid, one of the things it is, is um, a scale model of uh, a northern hemisphere of the Earth on a scale of 1 to 43,200. And therefore, if that's so, and I believe it is, then it's telling us absolutely that uh, we are looking at the work of a high civilization. So, so the, I'm, I'm glad you brought it back to the pyramids because the Ro Robert Baval discovery was incredibly important. In Egypt, the Giza pyramids line up with Orion, and it's not so much they line up with Orion, although that does happen. 
Um, it's a very it, Robert Boval's discovery, the Orion correlation theory, is uh, is I believe one of the most important discoveries uh, in the study of ancient Egypt that has ever been made. It's 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 uh, uh, almost as valuable as the Rosetta Stone and the the deciphering of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, because suddenly we can begin to understand what is going on. First of all, it's important to know that the constellation of Orion mattered to the ancient Egyptians. This was not just any random constellation. When the ancient Egyptians looked at the constellation of Orion, which they called Sahu, uh, they envisaged it as the celestial figure of their deity Osiris. And there's a whole raft of mythology about Osiris, who is a bringer of civilization to Egypt in a remote period that they call Zeptepi, the first time thousands of years in the in the past um, and and uh, Osiris the whole mythology of Osiris becomes linked to the to the story of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs so that each pharaoh on his death became identified with Osiris Orion with the constellation of Orion in the sky um, and and um, therefore if if we're saying as Robert does that the Egyptian pyramids have an intimate connection with the constellation of Orion this actually makes perfect sense because the constellation of Orion was the single most important constellation uh, in the ancient Egyptian sky uh, secondly the relationship is complicated there are four uh, narrow shafts that cut up through the body of the Great Pyramid, two from the King's Chamber and two from the Queen's Chamber. And the two, uh, one from the King's Chamber, the southern shaft from the King's Chamber targets the lowest of the three stars of the Belt of Orion. And the southern shaft of the Queen's Chamber uh, targets the star Sirius, which the ancient Egyptians associated with the goddess Isis, the consort of Osiris. But the interesting thing is that that targeting of those stars, once we can, we can look at ancient skies now with modern computer programs, we can see exactly how they looked, exactly the height, the declension of each of the stars in the sky at any period in the past we wish. And that alignment of the shafts of the Great Pyramid with Sirius and with the stars of Orion's belt, is very firmly set in the epoch of around 2500 BC, which is exactly the epoch that Egyptologists say the pyramids were built. So it's intriguing, but that in itself does not rewrite history. But there's a second observation that Robert made and, and, and that Robert and I went on to refine together in a book called The Message of the Sphinx, uh, which, which is different. And this is that when you look at the pattern of the three pyramids on the ground and their relationship to north and south, they are actually imaging on the ground in three dimensions the three belt stars of the constellation of Orion, not as they looked in 2500 BC, but as they looked in 10,500 BC, 12 and a half thousand years ago, right back in that cataclysmic episode when the Ice Age was melting down. And then the, the project that we went on to explore together concerns the Great Sphinx of Giza, which stands very close to the Great Pyramid. The Great Sphinx is oriented perfectly due east. It's in the shape of a lion with a human head. We think that the human head was uh, a result of a recarving in historical times of what had once been a leonine head. Uh, and the Great Sphinx looks 
at the constellation of Leo, the lion, its own celestial counterpart, the resemblance is uncanny. Again, in that remote epoch of 10,500 BC, at the spring equinox, when the sun rises perfectly due east in line with the gaze of the Sphinx. So, two messages appear to, being, to be being sent by the Giza monument. One monuments. One speaks of the epoch of 2500 BC, which is interesting but not controversial, and the other speaks of the epoch, an epoch much earlier, uh, 8,000 years earlier, 10,500 BC, 12,500 years ago, and we think this is the epoch that the ancient Egyptians called Zeptepi, uh, the first time. Uh, and and um, so we have a, a, a nuanced site here. There is much about the site of Giza that can reliably and consistently be attributed to the pharaohs of historical Egypt. But there are structures on that site. We think the base, the base platforms of the three pyramids over which the pyramids were later built and completed. We think the megalithic temples at Giza, the so-called Vali and mortuary temples. And of course, we think the great Sphinx. And here, Robert Schock's work on the geology of the Sphinx and on the weathering patterns of the Sphinx, which show that it was exposed to thousands of years of heavy rainfall, comes into play, that these factors suggest to us that some of the monuments on the Giza Plateau not only commemorate a date that is 12,500 years in the past, but actually were created then. And if they were created then, uh, then history really has a problem, because that is not supposed, at that time, 12,500 years ago, our ancestors are supposed to have been simple hunter-gatherers uh, without the competence or the will or the motivation to create gigantic, megalithic architectural structures. And, and when these two ideas are brought together, the, the idea of the precipitation-induced weathering of the Sphinx that was put forward by John Anthony West initially and then by Professor Robert Schock of Boston University and the idea of the stellar alignments of the as above so below pattern that is being replicated by the monuments on the ground which also speaks of a remote epoch when these two ideas are brought together uh, you begin to you begin to sense that something about giza is fantastically old and and deeply deeply mysterious and this troubled egyptologists a lot they didn't like it because it was a well argued thoroughly presented a group of of theories uh, and they they sought to dismiss it and they said you know how could the how could the sphinx possibly be 12 and a half thousand years old our ancestors were hunter gatherers then you know it's the kind of circular logic that they go into they take their reference frame as though it's a fact and then use it to throw away any contradictory evidence. How could the Sphinx possibly be 12,500 years old? There is no other uh, large-scale monument any, anywhere in the world that, that's, that, that is that old. And, and that's why the much more recent discovery of a gigantic megalithic site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe, uh, which was deliberately buried by whichever mysterious people made it, uh, and thus sealed like a time capsule, and left untouched for more than 10,000 years. That's why the discovery of Gobekli Tepe is so important, because the dating of that site is absolutely reliable. It has been done by the German Archaeological Institute. There is no question of the intrusion of later organic materials. You can't date stone. You can only date organic materials with carbon dating. Um, th that site is d definitively in the range of 12 thousand years old. It's seven thousand years older than Stonehenge. Uh, and uh, 
the whole site, so far only a tiny fraction of it has been excavated. The rest has been uh, imaged by ground-penetrating radar. The whole site is about 50 times larger than Stonehenge. It's astonishingly sophisticated. It is 12,000 years old. And now the argument about the Sphinx has to be taken up again. Uh, Egyptology cannot dismiss it because there are other sites now in the world. There's another one in Indonesia that I've done a couple of research visits to called Gunung Padang, which again looks like it's 12,000 or more uh, years old. And I think we are poised on the edge of a, of a paradigm shift where more and more new evidence comes into play which cannot be explained by the previous theory of history and which requires a new theory of history, requires us to recognize the possibility that there has actually been a lost civilization, that its disappearance is connected to the cataclysms at the end of the last ice age, that there were survivors and that they sought to pass down their knowledge uh, to the future. And that's why I've just spent the last three years researching and writing a completely new book called Magicians of the Gods, uh, which is the sequel to Fingerprints of the Gods. It's not a revised edition of Fingerprints of the Gods. It's a completely new book, 500 pages long, filled with new information from front uh, to back, because what's happened in the last 20 years, and Fingerprints was published 20 years ago, is that just a mass of exciting new information has emerged, much of which is not yet in the public domain. And in Magicians of the Gods, I seek to put this in the public domain. And there is some information on Magicians of the Gods on my website. If you go to www.grahamhancock.com, you'll see from the opening page an immediate link to Magicians of the Gods. It's being published in Britain on the 10th of September. In America, the publication date is presently listed as February 2016, but I'm optimistic that the publishers will bring that forward uh, to November. Uh, and that book is already available for pre-order on uh, Amazon.com. And I, my feeling is that you know Robert Schock and and Robert Boval are also working on a book looking specifically at the Sphinx. And I think that what what is happening is that the whole group of us who worked in this field twenty years ago and who were radically attacked for considering this extraordinary possibility, that we are now reaching a point where. Our, uh, the case that we made, which was ridiculed at the time, is being vindicated by, by new evidence. So I think it's a very exciting moment, and I think it raises questions over everything that we imagine human civilization to be about. When we acknowledge that either through misinformation, misdirection, the history of our species has been either hidden from us through stupidity or you know whatever it is... It, can you say that this is some level of spiritual warfare? Well, I, I have to consider that possibility um, because of my other interests, which are my interests in shamanism and, uh, and altered states of, of consciousness, uh, which have, have convinced me that reality is much more complicated than you know, our five senses might lead us to believe, uh, that we are immersed in an invisible reality, and that reality has an impact and an influence upon us, whether we like it or not. This is the whole essence of, of shamanism, the, the notion of a spirit world, uh, which, which influences and impacts uh, the human race. And, and shamans are those amongst us who seek to be proactive about this and to, and to enter into the realm of spirits and negotiate with spirits on their own 
on their own terms. And, and just as there is good and evil in the material realm, in the physical world that you, know, you and I live our daily lives in, um, the, the whole framework of shamanism will also tell you that there is good and evil in the, in the spiritual realm. Uh, and that uh, that there are dark and negative entities out there uh, whose sole purpose is to delude and mislead the human race. And moving away from, from shamanism, if you go back to the ancient system called Gnosticism, uh, you will find that the same idea prevails there. Now, the Gnosticism was stamped out by the Christian church in the early centuries of the Christian era. Horrendous persecutions were unleashed upon those who called themselves Gnostics, who believed in a revealed knowledge that, that came through visionary experience. The Gnostics absolutely made use of psychedelic mushrooms in their investigations of the nature of, of reality. But Enough of the Gnostic material has survived, thanks largely to a library of Gnostic texts. In fact, they're referred to, you can buy, you can buy the Gnostic texts on Amazon. It's called the Nag Hammadi Library, edited by James M. M. Robinson. The, the Nag Hammadi texts, uh, at the time of the persecution of the Gnostics, a group of Gnostics who lived in southern Egypt near the temple of Dendera, uh, took the decision to bury an entire library of their texts in uh, pottery jars uh, in the sand. And they remained hidden there from the 4th century uh, AD until 1945, when they were found by chance. And they've since, since been translated. And I would urge anybody who's interested in the mysteries of existence to go and get the Nag Hammadi Library, James M. M. Robinson edition, the full translation of the Gnostic text. And it's an utter revelation. They turn everything upside down. I mean, from the Gnostic point of view, we have been deluded for the last 2,000 years. The entity that we have been taught to worship as, as God, uh, Christians, uh, Muslims, Jews, the, the God of Abraham, we all supposedly are, are taught to worship the same entity, we may call him different names. From the Gnostic point of view, this entity, this creature is not a God at all. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a demon. He's the, 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 he's a pretender. He's an imposter. He's persuaded us to believe that he is God and to worship him. He's got a huge overblown ego. He's extremely jealous. He persuades human beings constantly to harm and hurt one another. His whole purpose is to keep us in darkness and prevent us from realizing the divine spark within us. So, you know, this is a, a profoundly revolutionary system of ideas, and you can understand why the, the Christians, uh, particularly in the form of the Roman Catholic Church, were so vigorous in their persecution of the Gnostics uh, and, and, and sought to stamp them out. Because once you really start to think about Gnostic ideas, because what the Gnostics are saying, don't look at what these guys say. You know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all talk the talk of peace and love. But look at what they do. Look at what they actually do. Look at the burnings at the stake. Looking at, look at the stoning to death of, of women. Look at the, the behavior that is encouraged. Look at the division, the hatred, the fear, the suspicion that multiplies around the world connected to these three religions. And you might begin to wonder whether the Gnostics aren't in fact right and whether we've been misled by some demonic force for the last 
2,000 years that has cleverly, more than 2,000 years, this is the God of Abraham we're talking about here, that has cleverly convinced us that it is God when in fact it's a, it's a demon and how more effectively could a demon operate than, than that? And this is not me saying this, this is the whole essence of Gnosticism and of the revelation of Gnosticism and it's really worth looking into. Now I'm not saying whether they're right or wrong. I leave that up to, to others to decide, each of us in our own way, looking at the story of the world. But uh, the notion that there might be dark spiritual forces at work, the, the Gnostics envisage evil angels that they call archons, which mingle amongst men and mislead us into all manner of crimes and actions that are hostile to the nature of the soul. They even look like human beings. Uh, they might be some of our politicians, actually. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, it, it's a framework of analysis of the human condition that certainly is worth considering and taking seriously, given the state of the world that we find ourselves in today. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Mr. Hancock, truly an honor to speak with you. But, I mean, what do you feel a shift in our in consciousness or this paradigm within a culture that's obsessed with materialism, television, drunkenness? What would a shift in consciousness look like? How, how can we recognize that this is occurring? Often when you're in the middle of something, it's difficult to see it. But I would say we're in the middle of a shift in consciousness right now. Uh, I think it's happening all around the world. The old paradigm of which the historical paradigm is a part is still very powerful. Um, but it isn't any longer, it doesn't any longer have a monopoly. Uh, there is such a spread of information now. The, the, the internet has had un unforeseen consequences. Uh, people are able to communicate with one another directly without going through the the medium of the big uh, media. You know, we, we can be in direct contact with one another. We can form communities of ideas. Uh, in, increasingly, notions that we are, we are taught to honor and revere, such as patriotism, uh, seem to become absurd. Pa patriotism is indeed the last refuge of the scoundrel. After all, why should we feel especially loyal uh, to a fellow human being just because they happen to be born under the same bloody government or on the same piece of land as us? What's so special about that? An accident of birth. Why should we, why should we pin our loyalty on that? Why, why, why are we not willing to recognize that we are all members of the human family, that we owe that patriotic loyalty to the whole human race, not to just a tiny, segmented, you know, sectored part of it? Uh, this this idea is coming with the internet because communities of ideas are forming around the world, regardless of the color of your skin or the religion into which you were born or the political system into which by accident you were born or the land on which by accident you were born. The old paradigm says those things are really important. The new paradigm says what's important is the ideas we share and our common and our shared humanity, that we are actually all brothers and sisters and that we will not be divided by these, these malicious, mal malign notions that limit our humanity and that limit the capacity of love. So the old paradigm operates on fear. It seeks to make people fearful and suspicious 
of one another. Uh, and, and it uses knee-jerk mechanisms like patriotism or this is your religion. Why should anybody actually accept a religion just because they happen to be born into it? You know, if there is a God, he gave us a brain. Why don't we use it? You know, why do we just say our parents told us that something is so? And we just have to, we just accept that as though it's so. We don't ask any questions about it. I think the new paradigm is asking a lot of questions and people are all around the world developing a new kind of spirituality, which is much more individualistic, uh, but at the same time respects and honors the spirituality of others. So I think we are in the middle of a dramatic shift in consciousness. Uh, and I think two, three hundred years from now, when historians look back on this epoch that we are privileged to live through, they will realize that it was a moment of incredible importance in the story of the human race. It's not certain what the outcome is going to be. The old negative forces are still very powerful, but the light is growing amongst humanity, and we are waking up all around the world, and we are refusing to put up with that bullshit any longer that has been stuffed into our ears and, and down our throats for centuries. The internet's playing a huge role in this and psychedelics are also playing a huge role in it. And that's why psychedelics are illegal. I mean, psychedelics are really not dangerous. They can be misused, of course, and I'm, I'm not advocating the, the irresponsible use of psychedelics. But, but by comparison with pharmaceutical drugs, the number of deaths caused by psychedelics is tiny, minuscule, almost unmeasurable. Uh, you know, whereas the, the, the antidepressants uh, and, and, and indeed, uh, acetaminophen, you know, pa painkiller, kills thousands of people every, every year. Even in tiny Britain, 3,000 people a year are killed by acetaminophen. That's not illegal, you know. But, but uh, the, the alcohol, glorified by our society, widely available, advertised, promoted, kills thousands of people every year, not just cirrhosis of the liver, but consider the road accidents. So the arguments that, you know, we are being protected from ourselves by our governments who tell us that we may not take psychedelics and that if they do, uh, they will send us to prison and ruin our lives is, is an absurd, hypocritical argument. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy argument. The real reason that psychedelics are, are so demonized in Western society is because somebody up there in the power structures know that these ancient natural allies of humanity lead us to ask deep searching questions about the kind of society we live in and the controlling powers, the dominator powers that run our societies do not want us asking questions about anything. They don't want us asking questions about the nature of reality. They don't want us asking questions about spirituality. They don't want us asking questions about materialism. They just want us to go on mindlessly like robots, uncomplaining robots, producing and consuming, producing and consuming, feeding the machine instead of realizing our humanity. And that's what's, that's what's changing. That's where the great hope lies in the future. And it's up to us. The choice, the choice is ours. We actually don't have to put up with that shit any longer. You know, we can make change, but it takes, it takes courage and it, and, 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 um, and it takes a sharing of information. Love it, man. Love it. Uh, we are, we're running out of time here, Mr. Hancock, but I have one more question for you. Uh, if, and you answered a bunch of my questions, just scrolling through all of them, I love it. Um, if you could go back 20 years and tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? Um, don't be afraid, you know, don't be, don't be afraid. Don't let, don't let fear govern 
your decisions. That would be that would be one important thing. And and another important thing is to remember that love is the opposite of fear and that that's that is what we're really here to do we're here to to give and to share love and 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 that means considering the needs of other people and and considering them carefully not being totally out for oneself but but looking to be a nurturing and and positive influence on on others in our immediate circle um i i think these are the most important messages send away fear and manifest love and and the world will become a better place mr hancock sir thank you so much for being here where can people find your work your book pre-order it where can they get that Amazon, uh, so, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's up for, the new book is up for pre-order on Amazon.com and Amazon UK, but um, the access, the quickest access to that is through my website, which is grahamhancock.com. Uh, and then I'm also, uh, so go to that and you'll see immediately a link to, the, to some information about the new book, Magicians of the Gods. But I'm also quite active on, on Facebook. I find, I find Facebook a very... Um, important and effective means to communicate with like-minded individuals. I have two Facebook pages. I have a personal page which has got 5,000 friends and about 30,000 followers, but my author page is really the most effective and that, that's got, I don't know, 222,000 followers. That's how it likes. That's how to recognize it. It's great. I can't remember how it is, but actually there's a link to it on the front page of my website. And um, I I actually post the same information on both my Facebook pages and I communicate quite actively on those pages and I've, I've found it a very, very positive and, and, and effective uh, way to share ideas. We will make sure that people get to your book and your Facebook page, sir. Uh, any, any final comments here? Any last bit of information? We've got a few minutes. Well, I, I think I just think the most important thing is to you know is to keep an open mind. It's a very mysterious matter to be alive at all. Uh, you know, we're 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 taught to just like take it for granted. Like again, this is when I speak of materialism, I'm not only speaking of the economic side that teaches us to produce and consume and seeks to persuade us that that's all there is to life. There's a much deeper aspect of materialism, and this is the notion that there is nothing more to reality than the material realm. You know, if you can't weigh it, measure it, and touch it, then it doesn't exist. This is, this is the idea. Many, you know, really intelligent scientists are absolutely committed to the notion of materialism. Such scientists, for, for example, R Richard Dawkins, the author of the book called The God Delusion and also the book called The Selfish Gene, um, it, Dawkins will tell you straight-faced that there is no such thing as life after death. Uh, and and many people are inclined to believe him. They think, oh God, well he's a highly qualified scientist, so he he must know that about these things. He must be right. But actually, what does he know? You know, has he died and and conducted experiments and then come back? No, he hasn't. This is not a fact. This is not a scientific fact that there's no life after death. This is a this is a reference frame. It's a it's it, it's actually a religious belief because it's not based on any evidence whatsoever. Um, and 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 you know many scientists will tell you there's no such thing as spirit. The horrible idea of materialist science is that consciousness is what they call 
an epiphenomenon of brain activity. The consciousness is a kind of accident. We have these big brains. They've evolved uh, to enable us to survive in the jungle of human competition. And as an accidental byproduct of that, we've got this thing called consciousness. And again, it's important to be clear that is not a fact. Consciousness is the greatest mystery of science. We don't know. We know that there's a connection between consciousness and the brain, but the exact nature of the connection between consciousness and the brain is not at all clear. And it may be that the ancients were right, that, that, that consciousness is fundamental to the universe and that it is essentially non-physical in character, but that in our realm, at our level of existence, consciousness manifests in physical entities. So, so the, the, in a sense, the relationship of the consciousness to the brain is more like the relationship of the, you know, the TV signal to the TV set. Um, that, that, that you can destroy the TV set, but the TV signal is still, is still there. Uh, this, uh, I think this notion that consciousness is primary and that the realm of matter comes second, that we are spirits, we are souls having a human experience, which is a very ancient idea, I think that idea is going to turn out to be correct. And the modern scientific idea that matter is everything uh, and that consciousness is just an accidental byproduct of matter will turn out to be very foolish and, uh, and, and wrong. And again, I think people all around the world are, are waking up to this as well. It's an incredible gift to be born in a human body, to have the experiences that we can have as human beings. And I think that this world... I've described it so often as a, as, as a theater of experience. It's a place where we come to learn and to grow and to develop. And, and anything that doesn't serve that process and the whole structure of Western society right now does not serve that process uh, is, uh, it, 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 it is dangerous and, and, and wrong. We, we, we need to understand that we've been given an incredible opportunity to live in a human body and to make the choices, the fine choices between right and wrong, between good and evil that all of us have to make every day, sometimes at very small levels, sometimes at very high levels, and that we're here to learn from making those choices and that we are the product of our choices. Let's not allow ourselves to be deluded into the belief that we are just an accidental combination of molecules and that's all there is to us. Yes, our bodies are a combination of molecules, but the consciousness that's embedded in those bodies is the greatest mystery of science and it's never been explained. Mr. Hancock, it's truly a pleasure to know you, sir. Thank you so much for being here. This is The Human Experience. Thank you guys for listening. We will be back next week.